Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's a really short chapter. Um, it's only 15 verses long. Uh, so again, I remind you that, that when you, if, if you're wanting to read the Bible, it's not as intimidating as you might think, particularly when it comes to the New Testament. New Testament is only about a third of, of the Bible, give or take. And 1 Timothy 2 is, is quite brief. And we won't look at all of it. I'm, I'm going to purposely avoid some of the more controversial uh, part just because it, it's going to distract from what it is we're trying to accomplish through these devotions. Uh, notice how he begins here in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So, uh, Paul, after he lays out for Timothy, he is to lead the church through a right understanding of the gospel and through right doctrine. He then now is is pushing him to lead uh, the people of the church in Ephesus to live godly lives. And the first part of that is to pray, to live a life of prayer. He, he uses the uh, the term supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, which which prayer includes all of those things. So so he says pray for everyone. Uh, be, uh, these prayers should be made for all people. Intercede on behalf of others. Be thankful for on behalf of others. Pray for others. Now that is an, an umbrella term, right? Everyone should mean everyone, right? Um, and uh, that is certainly true, that we should be praying for our neighbors, we should be praying for our friends, our enemies, our co-workers, strangers, uh, our, 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 whoever it might be. We need to be praying for everyone and live a life of prayer. And it's in that context we can understand what Paul means in, uh, I think it's First Thessalonians, if not Second Thessalonians, to pray without ceasing. Um, it doesn't mean that um, we're in sin right now if you're listening and I'm talking. Uh, what it does mean is that we live a life uh, uh, saturated with prayer, that we are in regular communion with prayer, and that we are regularly interceding uh, on behalf of others. So uh, that is true, but notice how he specifically applies that command to, to make supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, and that is for kings and all who are in high positions. Now it's not limited to the king, we should notice that here. Uh, it isn't just pray for for the person at the top of the government food chain, but pray for everyone that has some authority, civil authority. Now, you should note here, Rome does not have a king. It has an emperor at this time, which may be a distinction without a difference. Um, but, but Paul here is making a broad point that, that whoever is at the top of civil authority, pray for that person. But not just them, pray for everyone in their administration, everyone in their cabinet, everyone in the government, everyone with civil authority. So that would be uh, police officers, and, and it would be for city magistrates and constables. It would be for mayors and judge executives and governors and state senators and congresspersons. It would be uh, 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 our, 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 our senators and our uh, representatives and our governor and our president and our uh, Supreme Court justices, our state Supreme Court justices, and, and all down the line, we must pray for everyone. See, it would be better for Christians to be known as a people of prayer than a people of politics. 
The problem is, is that we trusting in Air Force One or trusting in legislative solutions, we've become known more for our political positions than than our our our, our willingness and our and our desire to pray for others. Do people know you as a person of prayer? If they were to look at your Facebook timeline, your Twitter, Instagram, whatever it might be, would they say, this is a person who prays? Or would they say, this is a person who is consumed with influence and uh, politics? What would, what would we gather from uh, your words and how you carry yourself? So, so he begins, prayer is essential to a healthy church, to a healthy spiritual life. And it is worth pounding this point because, uh, because it is so central to the biblical worldview. The world may laugh at, at prayer, but, but we find it very serious business that we pray, and we pray often and frequently. But notice what he says in verse 5. Uh, this is, again, a great summary of the gospel, which, again, remember, Paul is writing to one he's mentored, who is a pastor in Ephesus, and Ephesus have, have their own challenges, and he, again and again, wants him to know and to know how to articulate the gospel of Jesus, which means the church is built on the gospel. The church is not built on tertiary doctrines, from Bible doctrines to the end-time beliefs. It is built on on the gospel. You cannot get it wrong, nor can you assume the gospel. When the gospel is assumed, the gospel will be uh, forgotten. So he says here, verse 5, there is one God that's consistent with the Jewish Bible, it's consistent with the Christian Bible. Even within the Trinitarian worldview, we believe there is one God. Right? There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So um, uh, we see here that Jesus here is playing the role of the high priest. But not just the high priest. Moses plays this role. You may recall the, the battle scene where, where uh, if, if Moses holds up his, his hands to heaven, uh, the Israel will, will win. When, when he drops his hands, they, they will lose. And so I believe it's is it Aaron and Joshua, uh, or, or, or I'm pretty sure that's right, uh, are holding up his, his arms so that, that he, he doesn't drop them because, because they're tired. Uh, the idea here there is that Moses is standing as a mediator. Later, when God is ready to strike down the people of Israel because of their idolatry and disobedience, God stands between the people of Israel and God and says, says no, don't do that. Take my my life don't take theirs. The idea of a mediator is something we we understand in our context, doesn't it? Chances are that if if your marriage is on the rocks, you seek a counselor. This is a mediator, someone who who loves and supports and, uh, both of you as individuals, but also loves you as a couple, right? Uh, that, that, is, uh, that is a mediator. We, we have mediators in the legal system. And, and so Paul comes and says, Jesus is the mediator between two sides that have been separated, God and man. But we need to understand the separation is conditioned on the disobedience of you and I. 
because of our disobedience, we stand in judgment of God. We have rebelled against him. He has not rebelled against us. And so this is a one-way street. One of us is guilty. One of us is, is innocent. And there stands Jesus, who is the God-man. Right, So he, there is one God. Jesus is that God within the mystery of the Trinity. Yet he is simultaneously human. Thus he represents both God and man and offers himself as the perfect mediator. So when Jesus is lifted up, to use language he'll use in John 3 with Nicodemus right before the famous John 3.16, he is lifted up on the cross. God's wrath is poured out uh, upon Jesus in the place of mankind. We understand this, right? Many struggle with the idea of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus stands in our place and for our sins. Uh, but really, it's, it's no more complicated than what a father or mother would do for their child. If someone were to break into your home, uh, you're, you're going to be a shield, you're going to be uh, um, um, a, a warrior on behalf of your family. Take my life, we would say, not theirs. If you have a loved one who is sick, have you not expressed, either internally or verbally, I wish it were me who were suffering and not you. That's all substitutionary atonement is. The Christ takes upon himself punishment that we deserve. So there is uh, one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Right? All of that is theologically central to the gospel. But then notice what he says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So, what, so, so now he moves from the language of mediator to a language of, of ransom. One of, the, one of the things I love about um, biblical theology is how uh, the Bible uses uh, an array of images to, to help us better understand uh, theology. So, uh, for example, the, uh, the, the church or the Bible is referred to as a lamp unto my feet or a double-edged sword, right? And so we have all of these uh, variety of images to help us understand what the Bible is. Christ has some of the same uh, uh, images as, as well. For example, we, we call him the head, right? Um, and, and we call him um, the uh, uh, cornerstone, right? We have all of these these terms used to help us to understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished, and how we should respond to him. The, the gospel, the cross and resurrection, the atonement, um, has the same effect. And so you'll see a variety of images and words used to describe the cross, and all of them give us insight into what Christ accomplished in his atonement. So you can have redemption, you can have propitiation and expiation, uh, you, you can have uh, a just, just like a dozen of them, and you can get entire books on this, and I find them very, very helpful. Mediator would be one, right? But here we also have Christ as our ransom. Now, we understand the idea of ransom in that a payment must be made to secure someone's freedom. In that context, it's similar to the word redemption. Redemption is uh, used in a variety of ways. One is you redeem someone out of debt. This is the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? So, so Boaz 
uh, uh, basically buys Ruth's debt uh, or Naomi's debt, technically, right? And and because he is the kinsman redeemer, uh, having been related to Naomi's husband, he has the legal authority to do that, and he has the financial funds to do that. Uh, another uh, way that redemption is used is for the purchasing of a slave for the purpose of setting that slave free. A good example of this in the Bible is not only the Exodus, that's what God does for the people of Israel, but also the story of Hosea, the prophet, who whose wife, a harlot, goes back into slavery or harlotry after uh, uh, after marrying Hosea. And in that context, he has to buy her back, which means she became um, a, a victim of the slave of, of, of the sex trade. Um, and so Hosea has to then go and essentially sell everything he has to buy his wife back. So he, he redeems his wife out of slavery, um, and, and, and because of that, she is free. Paul asks uh, Philemon to do the same thing to Onesimus, to set him free, and Paul offers himself, if he has, if he has caused you any damage, I'll pay it, uh, but let him go free. This is a theme throughout the Bible. Ransom is more uh, narrow in the sense it's clearly a, a financial tran transaction, and it's used throughout the Bible in a variety of ways. But what it is that we need to see is you and I were bought at a price. We were bought at a price. So that reminds us that when we come to the cross, uh, when we come to Christ, we do not just take it and leave, but rather we need to understand the great cost at which it took for our redemption, our salvation. We were bought at a price. In fact, that's Paul's language in, I believe it was 1 Corinthians we saw. You and I were bought at a price. So, so, so here we have, have the gospel that Christ stands as our mediator, and he stands as our mediator in offering himself as a ransom. And so that leads finally to verse 8, a good summary of this entire chapter. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now it is from here he'll give instructions to, to women um, and, and, and th their expectations. I, I really just don't want to chase that rabbit because this is going to cause me more, more issues than, than necessary. If you really want to know some thoughts I have, reach out to me and I'll, I'll give them to you. Um, but notice here, I want to point something out in the context of the local church. Now remember, everyone is supposed to pray. Everyone is to be able to understand and articulate the gospel. Then he says, you men of the church, my expectations of you is that you would pray. You would be holy. In order to lift holy hands, you have to be holy. And the idea of holy hands is, is a cleansed heart, a cleansed soul. And to do so without anger and quarreling. So, so Paul's expectations of men are high as it should be. So, so if you are a man of the local church, I am asking you to pray, be a man of prayer, a man of holiness, a man of peace. And thus you lead in the local church, you lead in the home, you lead wherever you are in the gifts that God has given you for his glory. Remember, you were bought at a price. Lord, we're going to see you guys here tomorrow.